This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Welcome to episode 38 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the most demonstrative podcast in the business. My name is James Myers, and I'm your host. Today we're going to be talking about teaching and demoing your game. With me in the studio tonight are two designers who have done a lot of teaching and demoing. First up, we have Victoria Earle. Hello. And second, we have someone who's been a member of the Guild for quite a while, but has never been on the podcast before, Chris Falkenberry. Hi, James. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, uh, let's get a little bit of background from you. Um, sure. Why did you start designing tabletop games? You know, I honestly can't remember, because I've done it as long as I can remember in some form or another. I think my family used to make fun of me for trying to change the rules to whatever game we were playing, because I thought it would make it more fun. It might also have helped me win. Uh, that's <laughs> irrelevant to our point right now. But thats uh, I can't really say why, because I just always love playing games. See, the difference between a game designer and one of my siblings is that my sibling would change the rules and then also cheat at the new rules when it turned out to not be <laughs> I never said I didn't do that. <laughs> I can neither confirm or deny. <laughs> so have you always been designing tabletop or have you dabbled in other arts? Um, I did play around with like a little bit of programming stuff in high school, but I never really took. But pretty much tabletop games are what I've designed. You know, I haven't I haven't really designed video games or anything like that. But I do also work for a company that does uh I mean serious games is not the best term, but we work with businesses and nonprofits designing usually tabletop games for them for training purposes like that. So I do games for fun and also fun games for other purposes. Oh, cool. I didn't know that that was a thing for tabletop. Yeah. I knew that was a thing for video games. Yeah, it's uh, it's not real common. We're one of the few. It's not real common. We're one of the few companies that does it. But uh, it's picking up more and more because you get a lot of the things that we're asked to help with are sort of interaction problems, like culture, get like workplace culture issues, or something like that, where it's helpful to be face to face with the people that you need to work with on this. Yeah, and honestly, the barrier to entry for making good video game content is really high as far as 3D models and stuff. But I can see designing a kind of tabletop game that doesn't take a million dollars to make and still be really effective. That's super cool. Oh yeah, that's it's it's a lot of fun and you're right. It's a lot it's a lot more cost effective to do that as well. And we do sometimes uh contract with studios and stuff do video games, but it it is a lot more expensive. <laughs> So when you've been designing these games, both for fun and for, we'll say for fun and for profit, anything that has really surprised you? The most surprising thing is, honestly, I think I just learned a long time ago, don't underestimate your players. And that really, uh, it ties in a lot to what we're going to be talking about later. But it, it surprises me. I, I'll come up with a game and the people I work with, oh, that's, that's so complicated or something. And, you know, sometimes it can be. But people pick up on things faster than you would think. Uh, people that don't normally play the kind of games that we tend to play around here. Um, so I've, I always found that it was surprising at first because you kind of think, oh, they don't they don't like the same kind of games we do, so they're probably going to think, oh, this is too complicated. I don't want to mess with it. And more often than you think, they're, they're just like, oh, this is cool. Awesome. 
So let's go ahead and move to what is in the oven. Chris, what have you been working on lately? Uh, well, the big project uh, is we've got my company, Stone Circle Games, uh, has got my game on Kickstarter right now. It's called Battle for Baternia. It's a tabletop MOBA, which uh, for those not familiar with the term, a lot of really popular games like League of Legends or Dota or Heroes of the Storm, where you have a team of heroes that fights another team of heroes and you're trying to take out their base before they take out yours. But what makes it interesting is that all the heroes are very different, and they all feel really different to play. So our game has kind of a like a retro feel to it. We've been working on it for a long time. I think it's a blast, and we're uh, really excited about the Kickstarter. On top of that, I've been kicking around a little, uh, a little light drafting game that doesn't have a name yet, but it's basically animals fighting other animals. Don't worry, nobody gets hurt too badly. But I've had a lot of fun with it so far, so I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, nobody gets hurt too badly. Just like real life. Just like real life. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I played I played Battle for Baternia at the Unpub Mini. It was pretty cool. I did about as well as I do in any MOBA, which is to say, <laughs> terribly. But I liked it a lot. It was really cool, and I really liked how different all the heroes were. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, and we also like that because it's tabletop, you cut out the most notorious thing about MOBAs, which is the toxic community that you usually have to uh, deal with. I mean, if your friends are toxic, there's not much I can do about it for you, but people are a little less like that when they're face-to-face. If your friends are toxic, don't play games with them. That's, that's usually that's good pretty advice, much yeah. the only thing you can do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really nice to have that interaction face-to-face. Absolutely. All right, and we're definitely going to be talking more about that as we get into the meat of the podcast. Oh, yeah. But Vicky, what have you been up to lately? A lot of things that aren't board games, but one thing that is board games is MagFest, which is my home festival. It is January 4th through 7th, and it's super cool. It has a bunch of tabletop games and video games. I'm always really, really excited about it. And while I don't help run this or anything, we have a MagFest indie tabletop showcase. Yeah, mitts. And so we've just opened applications for that not too long ago, and it's kind of Unpub Plus. Unpub itself does not um, help run it, although maybe in the future, hopefully. I don't know. So it's like similar to an Unpub. Similar to an Unpub protozone, but also including published board games so by indie developers. So something like Battle for Paternia, once it gets out of Kickstarter, is going to not qualify for an Unpub anymore, but it would still, I think, qualify for Mints. That's right. We've been at MAGFest uh, the last couple of years. We've had a great time with it, and we're, as far as I know, we're planning to be there again this year. So if Mints and Baternia intrigue you, you should come to MAGFest and check it out. It's good. So it's going to be cold. Don't forget your Mints. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And again, MAGFest, that's uh, January 4th to 7th, 2018, which is not that far away now. Yeah, and it's up in Gaylord National Harbor, which is close to Maryland. So it's about a five-hour drive from where G-Donk is. (laughs) All right, so let's get into the main topic for tonight, which is speaking to people, playtesters, people who are demoing your game. Basically, how are you communicating with the people that you want to play and or buy your game? So let's start out with getting playtesters at these designer events like Unpub, like Mitts within MAGFest. What are you doing to get people to come to your table and sit down? And so you guys have both been to the large Unpub at least once. And then you've also been to a number of smaller events. So what do you normally go in in the mindset of to get people to sit down at your table? So 
it's not that dissimilar from running tables or demo tables at other events at other cons. A lot of it is smiling, greeting people, saying hi, inviting them to sit down. People are, especially, um, it's it's going to be a little different if you have a big group of friends who are kind of milling around finding a game to play together. But especially if you have one person or two people, they're going to kind of be wandering around a little intimidated, especially at a, a big unpub event. And so it's really important to just be a friendly face, say, hey, would you like to sit down? You know, make sure they can see your table sign that, that tells them all the things they might be interested in. And of course, if they say, no, that's okay, or this is too long, hopefully you don't feel rejected, but you certainly shouldn't act rejected because you don't want to make them feel bad for not playing your game if it's not their style or anything. Oh man, my strategy of scowling and yelling at people just hasn't been working. I guess that's why. But that's, a, that's an excellent point. And the really cool thing about these designer events like Unpub is that the people that are attending are there to play test. At other conventions, you know, there's going to be people that are excited to play test unpublished games, but a lot of people want to play stuff that's already, you know, published or at least is going to be published imminently and is in its finished state. So it's really cool. We're really grateful for the people that come to those because they want to play and help you make your game better. Yeah, um, you certainly get a higher per, higher hmm. noise to <laughs> to signal ratio when you have something focused like Unpub versus a bigger event, but with a lot more people who just want to play, I don't know, werewolf. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, is the noise-to-signal thing. Um, uh, We also found that a big banner works wonders, especially if you have... I mean, you don't want to invest in art too early in prototyping, of course, but if you're far enough along that you've got the theme nailed down, having one cool piece of art that you can slap on a banner draws a lot of attention. Especially if you're going the kind of Kickstarter self Yeah, route. definitely. Yeah, if you're pitching to publishers, I imagine that's a little different because they're going to have their own art for you. But even then, table sign t- is super important to your table presence. For me, every time mm. there's a, an event coming up that I'm going to demo at, literally the last thing I want to do is sit there for an hour and a half in GIMP making my table sign after I've like killed myself updating my design. But you have to. It's super important. Oh, it's really important. If, if the table sign looks well-made and professional, then the players are going to think that your game is well-made and professional, whether or not it is. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually something I realize is still on my to-do list before I leave for PAX unplugged in less than 24 hours. Yeah, it's creeping up quick. Yeah. So yeah, like like you guys said, it's important to set expectations so that your playtesters know what they're getting into. And a table sign and a friendly presence are definitely the probably the best way to do that. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Len. If somebody goes, oh, how long is it going to take? You should probably tell them about how long it's really going to take because you're going to get an annoyed playtester that isn't going to give you a lot of information you can use if they're looking for a 30-minute game and end up playing a two-hour game. And... Along that route, if a game is taking much longer than you expect, for example, you made a change and it just <clears throat> explodes everything and makes it take way too long, or in some cases, if you have a group of players that have huge AP problems with that particular game, it's super, super important to like read the table. And I know that this is kind of a, a skill you have to develop or not necessarily a thing that everyone can do, but if you can... Read people's faces. Look at how they're looking. Are they concentrated? Are they engaged? Are they talking to each other? Or are they just kind of like staring 
at the table and really unhappy. Um, and if they are, then like you can offer them to cut it short. And again, in a way that's like, okay, if you guys want to stop for now, I've got plenty of data. You know, it's been a really good play test and it kind of looks like you might not be having the most fun ever. And it gives them a super easy out. Right. You don't even have to say that. You don't even have to say it looks like you're not having fun. You say, okay, cool. I see a lot of stuff I need to change probably. So I've got what I need. We can move on. Yeah. Uh, You know, that, and if that'll are, do it. And, and if, if they are super engaged, well, and you somehow too, misread right? them, they'll be like, no, 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 let me play some more. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely one of the situations I remember at, I think it was on Pub 6 last year. I thought I had a nice, quick 45-minute game, and after an hour and a half, they were about halfway through, and I realized <laughs> this is completely broken. <laughs> so, quickly, not not as quickly as I should have, but relatively quickly. Ended that test. Right. Well, you got your information out of it already. Yeah. yeah. And, and I realized I was not right. meeting what they were expecting out of the game. And exactly, at that point, yeah. no good feedback can come from that. That's right. All right. So let's say you've got your table, right? And you got your expectations. What do you do if you go to one of these events and you're either running late for registration or something like that, and you end up without a table and you are still trying to get some good play tests and you're trying to attract play testers? usually after hours or things like that. How do you guys go about doing that? I can't say anything about that because I'm never late. <laughs> I take photos. So, like, literally, you know, last Sunpub, instead of doing demoing, I took a camera around and took photos of the board games, which I find fun. I don't know what you would do exactly. T- carry your table sign around and shove it at people? I... <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to respect the people that did get a table and not try to encroach on their space. So I think after hours is really what you're talking about. That's a good idea. But if I don't get a table and I decide I still want to go to Unpub, I'm going to go play test other people's games and have a good time that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a good way, actually, to get play testers afterwards is that if you play a designer's game during the day... Right, they might be there to help you. Yeah, there's more of a chance they're going to be able to play testers in the evening and say, oh... I remember you. Yeah. After you played mine, gave me good feedback. Let me see what you got. I mean, don't expect that to happen if you go to one of these and you have a table. But if it does, great. Yeah, and kind of integrating that into socializing after hours rather than looking for playtesters after hours, like trying to capture live animals. <laughs> um, socializing with people, especially if you know someone who knows a group and you kind of have an in there, then you can just talk to them and hang out with them. And games come out. We're all board gamers. You can, you know, bring it up if it comes up in conversation, and people play test each other's games after hours. That's not a super helpful answer, probably, but that's kind. Of, it kind of happens organically, right? Yeah, and some kind of or some events are definitely more open to that kind of thing. Unpub is definitely you have a space; it is yours for the time. But then you've got events like Protospiel where there are no designer tables. It's just a room full of designers. Those are, I feel, better for early stage games when you need the really in-depth mechanical feedback. I've started using the analogy that Protospiel is a good event when you need to see how your game functions mechanically, and then Unpub is a great event for when you need to see how your game feels when it's being played. That's a good way to put it. I've never been to Protospiel, so I can't comment on that, but... I would actually say Unpub usually has a table that people don't use or make available to other designers. Because a lot of, sometimes designers, it's 
three days before Unpub, and they're like, I ain't got nothing. So that does sometimes happen, but huh. I or think that might sick. be a... Or they get sick. Yeah. That might be a, like, connections thing. Depend Like, depends on who you know. Sure. Or they decide to knock off early for a day, and if you happen to be in the right place, you can get that spot for a little while. Yeah. All right. So let's say you've got your table, and you've got your playtesters, and they're sitting down at your t- table. And now you have to teach your game, and you don't know who they are, you don't know how much they've gamed, where do you start? Well, this is where, this is the scary part, right? Because once they're at your table, then you actually have to teach them the game. And, you know, as long as I've been working on Battle for Maternia, I've gotten it down to kind of a, a spiel at this point. But I think practice is a big part of that, where you just teach the game, and you eventually figure out, like, what the best component to demonstrate this particular rule is how much to tell up front. Um, but I think that really comes from practice. And like, uh, like Vicky said, reading the, reading the crowd is a big deal. There's no worse feeling than you start explaining the game and then the eyes glaze over and you're <laughs> like, yeah, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I don't actually ever adjust my teaching based on like, like I don't look at a group and say, Oh, there's a, a young kid here. Let me dumb it down a little because the skill levels will be all over the place. It, it's completely non-predictable who will pick up on it real, real fast and who will mm-hmm. need a little help. The f- thing I find super, super often is if there is a learning disparity in terms of somebody plays board games all the time and picks on up on everything and knows all the terms and they, they have brought somebody with them who does not, the players themselves will make that up for you. When you explain, as long as you explain the rules to a pretty average knowledge base, like, don't use super... Yeah, you don't want to get really jargony, like, yeah, you... well, this is a worker placement tile lane, <laughs> right. Euro. Yeah, the... don't, don't be like, tap the card or whatever. Right. Or if you say something like that and they look confused, you can explain it. And as long as you explain it to that level, then I often find people will be like, oh, I'm a little confused about this. And the person sitting next to them will, will explain it to them. And then they just look to me for like, yes or no. And that's when you know, that's when you know you've got, you've done a good job of teaching it when somebody you just taught can teach it to somebody else. That's always definitely a plus when you, when you can step back during the game because you know, someone else understands it well enough that they will fix any errors. Yeah, that's definitely ideal. And also if you have somebody that just looks like they're completely lost or probably won't have a good time if you don't do something. Uh, it's also, if there's a more, we'll say, a player that caught on more quickly, then a lot of times they'll be willing to pair up and help that person, you know, learn and play through the game as well. I guess the only adjustment I ever make is if if I explain the rules and people aren't kind of picking up on that. And, again, it's the kind of thing where if someone's asking questions that show that they understand what you're talking about versus somebody's eyes are just glazed over. That's not even necessarily a player skill or learning skill thing. That's just attentiveness. Like if I'm tired enough, I'm just like, and I'm making a hand gesture, which is really good for a podcast. Makes great radio. My eyes just completely glaze over and I hear the rules in one ear and out the other, that sort of thing. So if that's happening, what I will do sometimes is set up like an example turn because that is a visualize. If someone isn't super good at learning by hearing or just can't visualize what the heck you're talking about, going through an example turn with them is like the way to 
make it clear, I think. Oh, yeah, that's an excellent point. Like, an example turn, even if somebody is having trouble, can be a really good way to get across the concepts of your game. There is the issue of you need to make sure there's a baseline of, of knowledge about what your rules are before you start going into specific examples, depending on the weight of your game. But, yeah, example turns are, are a huge, a hugely helpful teaching tool. Yeah, definitely had a huge success with that at Unpub Midwest, where I would have everything set up for turn number one before they sat down, and then say, you play two of these five cards, so pick two and play them. You pick two and play them. And then show how it worked. And then say, okay, pick those back up, put everything back. Now do it for real. Yeah, see, that's great. I was about to say something like, Man, I would I would be frustrated because I like to have some idea of what I'm doing before I do it. And then you said, oh, now pick it up and do it for real. And that's perfect because then I was like, okay, now I'm playing the game for real. I think that's an, that's an excellent idea. I don't have to steal it. <laughs> All right, so that's when you were teaching mostly to gamers and people who are hanging out with gamers. Chris, I'm not sure of the minimum age on Maternia, but do you have anything that you change when you're teaching to families or kids? As far as a minimum age, I've had uh, kids, uh, the last Unpub Mini, uh, some kids that looked like they were probably, I don't know, between 10 and 12 showed up and played, and they, they caught it just fine. They, they did a great job. So, um, like Vicky said before, I don't, I don't really try to, to, I guess, profile my players, but of course, when you have a family with really young children, um, some games aren't going to be appropriate for them. Betonia, for example, has a, a good bit of reading in it on some of the cards, so if a child is very young to where, you know, they may have trouble with that, it might just not be the game for them, too. Not yet, anyway. And you'll find families self-select for that. Like they, they usually do. They're the ones doing the profiling. That's right. They know their kid better than you do. So if they don't think that your game is going to be a fit for their kid, they might come up and ask you about it. And is like I said before, if you're honest with them about how complex the game tends to be, how long the game tends to be, then the players are usually going to decide for themselves whether they think that's a good fit. And uh, they'll probably let you know if there's something you need to do differently for teaching them. All right. Anything else regarding that? I guess just because it's, it's the players who are doing the profiling, that goes into not necessarily verbal communication, but graphical communication with your game. If your game is comp. If your game is not complex, then making it look complex will chase people away, which kind of goes goes back to more general, like, hey, design your game good. Mm -hmm. But it's true. If you have the table sign that, you know, tells people what your game is like and successfully communicates what kind of game it is, then you will have players sit down that you don't really need to make adjustments for or really need to explain things or explain how complicated your game is, too. That's right. Um, and of course that goes more, that goes for published games as well. Because there's a lot of times that you'll see a game that looks super light and it ends up to be a two and a half hour euro with lots of economic manipulation and stuff, which could be great, but it's not what you're expecting when you open that box. And so, and part of that's going to come into, you know, graphic design and, and art direction and all that, which if you're at an unpub table, you, I, you need to consider it a little bit, but it's not going to be the same level as if you have an actual published game. Yeah, I've seen some interesting examples recently where either the art was cute and fuzzy and it turned out to be a really thinky game, or it looked super complex and it actually turned out to be a 20-minute long right. dice roller. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the latter is the more troublesome mistake to make. Because if... And not 
for for unpub basically for before being published. After being published, I think the former might be more of a problem. But as far as presenting goes, you want more people to come to the table, and right. if it's if it for some reason looks much simpler than it is, I actually had some of this with Baker's Brawl because it is right a kind of conceptually simple game, but involves reading a square of tiles and mm-hmm. reading those patterns. And some people had more trouble with it than they might have expected seeing the what the game looked like. But that still worked out. It wasn't a problem. It's worse, I think, if you scare people away, basically. Yeah, I think you're right. And, um, yeah, there's some themes that just, for whatever reason, tend to be associated with lighter games. And that doesn't mean they always have to be. But if you want to make a, a heavier game about baking, you need to convey clearly that it's going to be a more in-depth experience. And part of that is because there's games like Piece of Cake. Or is it Piece of Cake? What's the one that the, was reprinted as New York Slice? I don't remember what the original title was. Uh, but it was, it was cake and pie related, which is a really light game. It's a great game, but it's really light. And I, so there's been some precedent set. So you have to be mindful that you know, certain themes tend to be in heavier or lighter games. And if you buck that trend... You got to show people that that your game is not following that trend. I guess this is completely tangential, but I think there is actually a correlation between how easy people expect a certain theme to be and how much real world correlation to simple actions you can do. Right? If you're managing a city, right? right that sounds hard. Right? That sounds like it's going to be a lot of crap. If you're baking a cake, I can bake a cake. It's not going to be a very good cake, but I can bake a cake in real life. I can't manage a city in real life. So I think there's definitely some correlation there with theme picking. Yeah, you're definitely... I think that's a good point, and it is tangential. But there's <laughs> a... Uh, that, that's true. The more you can say... You can visualize doing the thing in the game as a series of concrete steps. It's probably going to be a lighter game. Yeah. Not always, but probably. All right. So, Chris, you probably have also had experience with your teaching games to organizations. And how does that differ from families and gamers sitting, coming to sit down at your table? That is, uh, that is a different can of worms entirely. In my experience, because I work with Smart Game Systems, which is the company that I mentioned before, that we work with businesses and such to make games for training, we do often end up teaching our games to a large group of people at the same time. And that can be a challenge. Um, the nice thing about it is that you don't have to worry about attracting players because usually they will do that for you. It is a captive Sometimes audience. they're required to be there, yes. <laughs> Often they're required to be there. And honestly, they usually feel pretty good about it because it's, you know, they're doing this instead of working. <laughs> even though they don't know they're secretly working, too. Um, but it's tough because you have to make sure that everyone's on the same page. So if you have like a four-player game, you're trying to make sure all four players are getting it. But if I'm teaching the game to 32 players, I have, that's the biggest hurdle. And what I said before about practicing your spiel and making sure that you know what to talk about first, uh, which incidentally, I almost always tell you, and I didn't make this up, obviously, but like... I always, almost always start with, who are you, what are you trying to do, and how, like, how do you win the game and wins it over? Um, and that's especially important in a situation like this. As Vicky mentioned, the players that are getting it faster are, are going to step in and help out the players that are 
having a little more trouble. But for teaching to organizations also, you design the game with that in mind, with the understanding you're going to be teaching it to large groups of people and that they're going to be learning it together. So a lot of times it'll involve teams or something to that effect where players that pick it up quickly can help players that don't. And do you find that teaching in a, in an organizational environment is usually you're teaching several copies of the game at once or you're teaching groups of people to act as a single player? What, what's more common in an organizational game? Well, for from my experience, which may not be typical, uh, we usually do several copies of the game at once. So we did a game recently called Mission to Mars that has teams of players using ad, the, the agile method of software development, but to in, in, with the theme of launching a mission to can, Mars. Can I have that game? We might be able to arrange something um, <laughs> that you'd have to probably talk to the company that contracted us. But that game has several teams of players doing sort of a worker placement kind of thing to complete tasks and get their mission going. And it does involve, I suppose you could say several copies, but basically what we did was make a solitaire game where all the players are competing to get the same score in teams. Or not solitaire, but cooperative game. So they're playing five or six copies of this cooperative game with a few ways to interact with each other. Um, that's a little bit of a tangent as well, because it's not so much teaching the game, but that's a lot of how we do it is we'll have people... We, we usually make sort of a game that can be replicated in a series of teams... That way you don't have to have this enormous box with stuff for 32 players or whatever it is. Okay. So less less uh, mega civilization and more a bunch of different groups playing Pandemic. Exactly, yeah. Okay. I will say, going back a bit, the players helping each other thing can actually work against you too. And I love you, Dad, but I'm going to throw you under the bus so hard right now. <laughs> My dad and mom came to, to an Unpub Mini a couple of years ago, and I started teaching them this game. And I swear to God, everything I said, my dad repeated to my mom, and I wanted to slap him in the face. <laughs> I've never had that with another set of players. So I think it was just literally like a family dynamic thing. I hope that I like never get two strangers where someone's doing that to someone else. I'm like, you need to stop. You need to let me explain. Because he would sometimes get it wrong. <laughs> and he was doing it, I think, to, to also... like repeat it for himself and, and try to understand it better. Sure. But it was super disruptive. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't know a way to make that stop if that's happening because we can maybe go into this uh, a little bit later, but I've had a couple really unfortunate experiences with teaching players and things going wrong kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And the worst is, like, you always feel bad when a player... It's just great when a player helps another player learn the game that's that understand they understand the game the other player doesn't what's bad is when a player thinks they understand the game but has misunderstood your explanation and helps another player misunderstand it as well <laughs> and of course you step in somewhere in there but you, there is a bit of of tact that you have to leverage at that point so Vicky let's go ahead and talk about that now some so, uh, some some poor teaching situations and how you managed to get around them. I didn't. Uh, so <laughs> there was that, that, that happened. And that was just me going, you need to stop dad. <laughs> Please let me. Um, but, uh, 
I think actually doing an example might help with that case because it's less you telling, like, they have something else to concentrate on. And if someone is repeating what you say to another player to try to help themselves, then that might help, you know, if they have an example to look at, that might help them kind of anchor themselves. Right, so if they have an example to look at, it might help them anchor themselves if you have someone repeating what everybody or the other person is saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you've got the person who needs to teach to learn, which is definitely one of the learning styles, is is teaching to learn yourself. I think definitely try to get them to teach you rather than another player. That's a good strategy. Because then if they teach you wrong, you can immediately correct it. And then right. if you're doing the example at the same time, you can be like, actually, it goes here and slide the card to the right place on the table or move the chip to the right spot. I'm not sure how you get them to teach you if they are mm-hmm. concentrated on teaching someone else. Although, yes, I agree that having them repeat stuff back to you is the good and correct way to do that. Yeah. I don't know how to redirect their attention exactly. And actually, if, you, if you're in an unpub or something and they teach you back and they get it wrong, it's probably worth noting how they got it wrong. Yeah. Because you may want that that's how people intuitively do that thing that yeah. you just taught them. Yeah. I especially design I design a deck builder and people instinctively say, Okay, I draw five cards and I say, No, you draw six cards. And it, that one tiny change throws a huge amount of people. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Uh the other major thing that sticks out for me is these were friends, and I, of course, will not name them. And I'm sorry if you listen to this and recognize yourself. So um, I, I had... No, it's not. <laughs> I just picked a random name. That's my dad's name. So oh. It was really... <laughs> well, that's a lucky guess. <laughs> so anyway. Um, so yeah, I had some friends over at the Big Un Pub. And I had them all, you know, gather up as a group and sit down. And one of them asked to see the rules. And I don't know if... You should never give someone the rules when they ask to see them, but I should not have given him the rules because he started reading it to, like to himself, and I was like, "Okay, we we need like everyone needs to know these." And so then he started just reading them real fast in a monotone voice, and I'm like, "This is not, this is not good." Was so, like the guy at the end of the Micro Machines commercial. <laughs> so maybe actually uh, now that I'm talking through it, probably a good suggestion is to have a second copy of the rules. Oh, so if someone. Because people, like, learn visually, they want to read it or they want to follow along, so you can hand them a copy, and then you can can yourself teach from a second copy. I didn't have that second copy, so I was just kind of, like, digging my nails to the table going, no, please stop. I This is not how I want this game taught. Right, and at some point, it is important to let them just read the rules and try it on their own, but that's probably not the case for demoing games. Yeah, I think Unpub is not a great not spot a for test blind playtests. No. No, there's too much noise, there's too much confusion. And you really don't want the players to have to sit there for 20 minutes and read your rules, and yeah. then try to play your game. Yeah. Unless it's really light. Now, if it's a really light game, you can maybe get away with it if your rules are on like the front and back of a card. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I could also see that for if you're working on a children's game or something like that. Make sure the parents can teach to their children correctly yeah. the first time they read the rules. That's also a really good point. Yeah. Have you had any experiences that stuck out where you were like, I have made a horrible mistake and I regret my life decisions? Probably. But <laughs> <laughs> trouble thinking. Like, I can think of a few, especially, especially with work, where I'll start explaining the game or start teaching the game, and it's just not taking... <laughs> 
And it's a lot harder when it's a whole room of people that is not taking. Uh, we, we got through it, but, oh, it was an early play test. I remember now. Okay. Uh, it was a major, it was, it was a large company that we were working with, and they're located rather far away. So we were going to have, like, two play tests with them where we could be there. The first one, the game was still in an earlier state. And everybody was just completely confused, <laughs> except for one guy who was an avid gamer. Everybody else was super confused the whole time. And it's it's just when it's a whole room of people, you're... Oh, <laughs> so that's got like, to be like doing stand-up comedy and nobody laughs. It's a little bit like that, I imagine. I've never done stand-up. But I imagine. <laughs> and then the guy starts heckling you and you're... <laughs> Hopefully that didn't happen in the company setting... No, thankfully it did not. <laughs> Alright, so let's say that you have taught your game. The guy was down at your table, you taught your game, and you don't have a full table. And so, what do you do, especially if you're not necessarily at an unpub, but let's say you've now got your game, you've got a booth, you've got some more formal setting where you are purposefully showing off your game. What kind of etiquette do you have in that situation? Where you've got people, you know, are you playing a demo or are you trying not to play demos? That kind of thing. I try not to play demos if I can help it. So if there's, I don't normally have a goal of a certain number of players besides what the game can play, typically. So, you know, if there's three people there and I would kind of like a four player test, but there's only three people, I'll just do it with three people so I can watch and observe. If there's too few players, period, to play the game, then I'll sub in as a spot because there you can wait sometimes, especially if it's if you tend to get a lot of people or what will happen sometimes. Depending on the event, though, if it's if it's really busy and you have a lot of singles and doubles coming in, what can happen is while you're teaching the game, other people can come up and be like, "Oh, what's this?" So I find that people tolerate really well starting the rule explanation over. You know, being like, because you, you can be like, oh, are you interested? And then to the players, you can, especially if it, you haven't done much explaining, you can be like, do you mind if we start the, the explanation over so we can include these people? Most people are totally okay with that. It's a loss of like five minutes of their time. It's not a big deal. I don't tend to say, oh, let's wait for more players because then you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs really awkwardly and it's not amazing. I think I've done that a couple of times. I don't really like the way that feels as a kind of table dynamic sort of thing. so Yeah, I agree. I try to avoid playing my demos as much as possible. And I'm going to be talking about Beternia a lot because it's the game I've been demoing the most lately. But that one especially, it's a game that rewards an experienced player who knows what the cards do. And it's difficult to suppress the sort of gamer instincts where you formulate strategies and counter your opponent because I would have a huge advantage against someone who's never seen the cards before. So I really try to avoid playing that one and try to get a full table as much as possible. I have had people need to wait for an opponent a couple of times, mostly if it's just one person, because that that can be a two to four player game. And again, this is where most of my experience comes from. Um, in a larger player count game, I would probably sub in and play... And I think you're right that p players would tolerate starting the rules over, especially if it's a lighter game and the rules don't take that long to explain. And it seems like it would happen more often with a higher player count. You've got more of a 
more of a party game or a deduction game or something lighter like that. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, the higher player count, you're going to get people trickling in. You may Have you ever had to start the rules over a couple times? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Not completely over, but like halfway through, and then another right. person comes in, and, and you're like... That's a little more awkward to be like, so... Is this okay? <laughs> but a lot of times people are like, oh, yeah, more the merrier, that sort of thing. And hopefully they're not just being polite. Hopefully they don't. They actually don't mind. Uh, but I, you're right. It does depend a lot on the cam- kind of game. I think, especially for Baturnia, you're kind of two opposing factions. Right. And so in your head, if someone's like, hey, let's wait for more players, that makes a lot more sense because you need another player to play against. Yeah. If it's a more kind of organic player count where it's like, eh, three to five players, whatever then it, it's harder to justify waiting for more players just because you want that data. That's right. I, I agree, definitely. Uh, the nice thing about Viternia specifically is that the four-player is a team game where it's two versus two. So if a new person comes in, I can pair them with someone who's already learned the rules and seems like they're understanding it. In fact, I ran a demo yesterday, and that's exactly what happened, and it worked out just fine because they, they were able to help that person catch up. Yeah, by the same token, if... if you're in most of the way through the rules explanation and someone new comes in, the other players will often, you know, help out with teaching the game. And I think from from the perspective of the player, it helps you solidify the rules in your brain and make sure you've learned the things correctly. So it's good all around, I think. Yeah, definitely true. I, I think that's an excellent point. All right. So you've been demoing Baturnia at local game stores and also at some conventions. Is that right? That is right, yeah. Uh, we've been to, well, MAGFest... Uh, we've been to Gen Con, Unpub, uh, Unpub Minis, and various local game stores. And also, the other guys in my company have been doing it in their area as well. We're all over the country, so you know, they, a lot of folks in the D.C. area or out in Los Angeles have uh, also been doing that. I, I say a lot of folks. There's six of us. We're not an enormous company or anything. <laughs> and so, when you're doing demos at a at a convention that is not something like an Unpub. What, if anything, are you doing differently than you do at an unpub or a, a local event? Well, actually, at some like Gen Con, they have you put your events in the schedule and people buy tickets to participate. And that's really convenient because you can put a time slot for the event. So the players know, the players are already planning to spend the amount of time that the game takes when they sit down. And I think it actually makes the whole thing a lot easier. Although, somewhere like an unpub means you're going to get more players and more testers because you don't have to schedule it out in advance and people don't have to pay, pay you money to play your Well, pay the convention money to play your game. Do you ever have people not show up? Oh yeah, that happens sometimes. I think the last Gen Con I had maybe eight sessions scheduled and one of them completely scrubbed and the other one had like one person, but the rest of them were pretty good. Oh, I guess if it's one person, you can't really find other people to sub in. No, I had to play that one. All right. So if you are demoing a more complex game like Viternia, where you have that situation right. where you've got a learning curve and the designer is noticeably higher on the <laughs> curve, any advice for folks who are trying to demo games like that where they might have to sub in? I mean, that is a bit of a challenge, especially in a game with a lower randomness like like Baturnia has generally less randomness and the unpredictability comes in trying to anticipate your opponent's actions and a lot of times you ju- you kind of just have to sandbag a little bit and maybe not take what is probably the most optimal play 
Because you're like, oh, I see they moved it. That means they're probably doing this. I can counter it with this. That won't be any fun for them. So I'll just do a, a medium good play that that they'll still feel like was a challenge, but that doesn't completely destroy their whole strategy that they're probably going to do. And I think it also varies a lot with each complex game because the more complex a game gets, they're going to get more and more different from each other. But in my experience, you kind of have to try not to use your knowledge of the game to give you too much of an advantage over the players because people like to do well when they're playing. I think it depends a little on the player. Yeah. When you're playtesting with strangers, it's it's harder to tell. It's it's easier to tell if you actually know who you're playing with. But oh, yeah. There's definitely some people who do not care how oh, well sure. they do at all. They just want to see how it works. And yeah, that's, those people are great. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you ever specifically handicap yourself, or is that just basically not possible in Baturnia specifically? I wouldn't say mechanically. The only time I handicap myself in the way I play is there's a few combos in that that if you time them right as opposed to what your opponent is doing... It will pretty much ruin their turn, and they won't get to do much because. And it, and it's fun when you're playing against an opponent of equivalent skill level because you're like, ah, you got me, you stopped my strategy. <laughs> but if you're playing against the designer of the game, I can see how that would rather feel bad. So I just try to avoid those particular kinds of situations, specifically the point of just not taking the characters that do that kind of thing. Uh, and that could work for other more complex games, too, that have multiple strategic paths. Like, choose a path that's going to allow the other player to explore the systems of the game. And it doesn't mean you're going to do... You have to necessarily handicap yourself, but just choose a different strategy that isn't going to hinder their ability to enjoy the the uh, various systems that the game offers. I guess there's varying levels of meanness in that game, depending yeah. on what you do. And so as long as you're not playing super mean, and what I mean by mean right. is just like winning by making them bad, making <laughs> them feel bad, making their turn go poorly. Um, and that's that's the most dangerous thing, especially if you are the one playing the game. You don't want to make your playtesters feel like they mm-hmm. just got dumped on. So, yeah, right. that makes a lot of sense. And you don't want it to be really obvious that you're... you're like, you don't want to sandbag in an obvious way, because most players still want to have a close game. Whether I think, at least in my case, I would rather have a fun close game and lose than be let to win. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So anything else that you guys would like to mention regarding speaking to people about your game from the moment they approach your table to the time you're done. What about um, feedback and things like that? For me, feedback is a lot of nodding and a lot of writing down. If if someone is very astute, they will know which feedback I like based on how much I discuss it with the player. Because, like, what gets me excited... Like, there's feedback that gets me excited. And then there's feedback that I write down. Write down all the feedback. Um, it's, I guess, it's a bit of a balancing act to discuss feedback with a player without seeming like you're arguing against it. Right. And especially if a player is coming from a totally different perspective and has just suggest something way, way off base, and you're like, add dice? I don't understand. This isn't... (laughs) What? Yeah. This is a perfect information game. Let's add some dice to it. (laughs) It can be hard to be like, well, this is why I didn't do that. And sometimes it's appropriate to be like, I've tried this already, and it didn't mm-hmm. work out, just so they know, or it might 
bring up more ideas in their head. It depends a lot on like how much you've been talking throughout the game and, and how much you think they would take you being like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Mo- don't say I'm not going to do that. Don't actually say that. But write everything down. Huh. Smile, nod. Right. You, you say that, but I've been testing a two-player game. Everybody who doesn't hasn't followed me on Twitter or anything like that. It's oh, based on dilemma? the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. Which is a two-player thought experiment. And probably 20% of the people I play with say, can we play this three or four player? And my mouth says, I'll think about it. And my brain goes, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> because the math involved would just go catastrophically wrong. I'll think about it is a good answer. If you're not, I, I do find some players, especially like super analytically minded players, will want to have like super deep discussions oh, yeah. with you about you know the game mechanics and stuff. And other players are just kind of trying to make suggestions because they feel. I, I feel like some players make suggestions so they feel like you feel like they've been paying attention. That Part does sometimes that sentence. I think happen. <laughs> um, but I think your your advice to use the. Uh, Active listening techniques, as it were, with the where you nod and occasionally add, like, yeah. I mean, you are actually listening to what they're saying. Don't get me wrong, but you make them aware that you're listening to what they're saying by acknowledging it occasionally, um, saying something like "I'll consider it." I think that's a great idea because even if you're not going to do it, you're not shutting them down completely. And with Viternia or any game that's themed after an existing, I guess, game or IP or something like that. Because Paterni is not a specific IP that it's themed after, but it is a popular genre. And that genre has some hallmarks that are not in Baternia because the transition to a board game necessitates cutting some of those. So people are like, oh, can you add items that we can buy for your characters? Can you add jungle monsters? Can you add all, all the different stuff that would show up in a video game MOBA? And I had... I don't want to get their hopes up by saying, yeah, I'll consider it, and then they go to look at the campaign on Kickstarter, and it's not there. But I also don't want to just be like, no, we cut that a lot. I, sometimes I will actually say, yeah, we tried that out in an early version, and we ended up cutting it for now at least. Yeah, I think it helps a lot if you have like a clear, distinct reason for not having included a feature, especially if it's a feature right. that people suggest a lot. So, so for example, the the NPC monsters, the jungle monsters, you can be like, yeah, that would be fun, except you would be spending a ton of time emulating their AI because we can't just do it from the computer. And then I think people, most people that I talk to like that, they, they get that. They are not offended. Um, as long as you're not being like, no, that's a terrible thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> as long as you're super friendly about it when you're like... Your feedback's bad and you should feel bad. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, don't say that. Don't but. say that. I think it helps a lot to have a notebook as a prop. So mm-hmm. for anyone who's listened to the the uh, accessibility podcast, the last podcast I was on, I talked a little about how my hands don't work right. I hate writing by hand with like a deep passion. It physically hurts me. I still bring a notebook as a prop to write everything in because it is so useful to to have that active listening thing where I'm writing what down mm-hmm. what they say because it makes them feel like they are actually being listened to. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally enjoy... I, I prefer writing by hand, but I can see if you're 
hands don't work as well or, or whatever, then that might not be great for you. But having some way, like you said, to actually physically record what they're saying is really helpful, both to make them feel listened to and because you're going to actually write it down and be able to look at it later. Yeah. And it can be a useful tool. Like play testers, we do actually write down the things you say when it looks like we're writing them down. I promise. We actually read it later, too. And there are, are some cases where when you first hear the feedback, you're like, okay. But then you can look at it later and be like, no, actually, or your game changes, and you can right. look at it later, and it's like, no, actually, that really works and now. You, yeah, that works now with the changes that we made. Yep. All right, so let's get into some GD of NC news. Uh, we're going to start off with the similar news from the last podcast. The Kickstarter for the Button Shy Games, Herotech, Kintsugi, and Invito Morte. Uh, Kintsuni is from uh, Mark McGee and Daniel Solis. That has successfully funded by the time that this podcast will be released. Uh, they are about $6,500 now with 61 hours to go. So hopefully they'll get just a little bit more by the time we finish up. So that's a successful Kickstarter. Nice. Congratulations, guys. Yay. And I saw Kitsugi, I think it's called, uh, back when they first figure- were figuring that <laughs> out. So it's really cool to see that in, in physical form in a Kickstarter. Yeah, it looks like a fantastic little game. Chris? Yeah, speaking of Kickstarter, once again, um, and I know I've said this, this is probably the most times you've heard the word Baternia in your life, but Battle for Baternia is on Kickstarter right now. We are in our second week as of the time of recording, which is November 15th. That Kickstarter ends on December 7th of uh, 2017, of course. And right now we're about 75% funded, so we're really excited. We're hoping, this is our second time around, so we're hoping for a good result. Because last time we got to almost 90% and just fell a little bit short. But being at 75 now makes us makes us really excited. So if the game sounds interesting to you, go check it out and back it. We'd really appreciate your support. All right. Uh, if they want to get in touch with you, Chris, how can they do that? Well, you can find me on Twitter at, at @ccfalconberry. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. All right. Vicky, what about you? Same bat time, same bat channel, at VM Earl. Uh, as always, that's pretty much the best way to contact me, period. I don't really go on BGG that much now that our guild operations have kind of moved more to Slack. Oh, I should probably uh, put a thing in here real quick. You can find Battle for Baternia's Kickstarter at Baternia.com. That's B-I-T-E-R-N-I-A dot com. And we'll make sure that we put that in the show notes as well. Excellent. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as at Apollo Continuum. Check the show notes for spelling on that. To or use, can, folks. To use. <laughs> or you can find me on BDG as Space Nut. To discuss this episode, please go to our guild on BoardGameGeek. Go to podcast.gdofnc.com, and that will redirect you to the guild on BoardGameGeek. All feedback is welcome. We also have a group Twitter account you can follow, at GD of NC, which stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. That'll do it for this episode of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Good night. Good night. Good night.